there. Um, and then we'll jump into it. Um, so let's pray. Father, I just pray that you'd bless our time together, um, God, and that we would uh, come to understand the ways that um, the newest generation thinks um, and lives a little bit better so that we can um, better lead them to you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so this class, um, it does say parenting Gen Z, um, and I don't know if it will so much be a, a parenting class as I've never been in a parenting class and I've never taught one, so I don't know what they're supposed to look like. But um, the first couple weeks, we'll do a lot of um, sort of academic stuff. It'll be, it'll be lots of numbers, lots of data um, based on the, the recent Barna research, which was published just this like January. Actually, maybe it hasn't actually officially come out yet. Um, but it's it's brand new um, research that was done in 2016 and 17 on 13 to 8 year old, uh, no, not 13 to 8, 13 to 18 year old um, teenagers, um, basically trying to get a good idea of what Generation Z looks like and what they're shaped by. Um, so today, um, the plan is to just go over the six identifying factors that that have shaped Generation Z, the things that they've identified as these are the most important things. These are what motivates, influences. I mean, the next week, um, we'll shoot for, assuming we get through all of it today, we'll go for um, what dictates identity um, for Generation Z. Um, and they're very unique. Um, it's a really interesting study. And one thing with, with this, like with going through data, um, there's going to be a lot of it that's going to make us think like, wow, these are really selfish entitled kids <laughs> or, or, you know, like you can read data in lots of different ways. And so, um, the main idea, like I want to encourage is that like, let's not pick a, like it has to be negative or positive on the information and instead, um, look at what it says about the people. Um, so, and there are some actually that are going to be, there's one of them that's like, this is what parents are doing wrong. And it's not my opinion. I just got it out of the book. So <laughs> it's not personal. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we'll just jump into that stuff just real quick to, to get us started. Um, generations. Um, so just to point out, this is just a study of the United States. Um, when we talk about Gen Z, we're not talking about global generation because that would be sort of impossible to capture. But this is a study of um, adolescents in the United States. Um, so just the way generations work, elders, and there's different names for these. Builders is another one that's used sometimes. Born before 1946. Um, boomers were born between 1946 and 1964. Um, Gen X, 1965 to 1983. Um, millennials, 1984 to 1998. Um, so these are, these are, numbers that kind of have a range depending on what company or what research institute you're looking at they kind of vary um, but that's a general look at how um, the generations work um, and then we have gen z who was born between 1999 and 2015 um, the largest american generation yet um, 13 to 18 year olds like i said are the ones that this study is focused on um, so we don't really have data on kids younger than that, but they're assuming there's some of the same factors that are going to come into play for both of them. Um, most of them still live at home, uh, which is not that surprising considering that the oldest of them now are like 20. Um, so, but 
part of the reason that that's included in the study is that they're pointing out like there's still lots of opportunity for parents and the church and things like that to help shape um, the way Generation Z is going to turn out. Um, that's another thing with generations. It, it's not like all of this information tells you exactly how all these kids are because there's some of them that are very different, you know, and there's, there's a wide range in all of them, but it'll give us like a general idea of um, the main ideas and the main like thoughts that they have. So the first thing that shapes, yes. No, there's there's a pretty wide representation. Um, on the data, it will. I think sometimes it'll specify whether it's Christian, like church teens, or engaged church teens, or um, unchurched teens. And so they did they did a pretty wide study of all teens um, to kind of get that. Barna, Barna did it with Impact Three Hundred and Sixty, which is a just a youth outreach group so yeah so screenagers is the let me go back hold on um yeah screenagers is one of the nicknames they're giving this generation which is obvious i think um but basically they they don't remember a world without instantly accessible data you know like there's there hasn't been a time since they've been alive um, when they weren't able to be connected with things immediately. Like they never have, they've never even experienced somebody printing off map quest directions. You know, like they don't understand that if you if you didn't have your your map in the past, like you couldn't get where you were going. You know, um, so that's a big marker. And also, just the way that they process information is different. Um, which we'll kind of get to in a minute as well. Um, this is a big deal now. Anybody know what that is? Nomophobia. It's a feeling of anxiety you get anytime you're separated from your mobile device. Um, and I think probably some of us get that too. <laughs> um, but it's a real thing amongst teenagers. Like I have seen it multiple times. I'm like, man. <laughs> so that's another thing that kind of sticks with screenagers. Um, the next thing, uh, screen time. And this one, I'm about to show you a graph that's really interesting. Um, but screen time also affects sleeping patterns um, and some of the ways that information is processed. Um, so a lot of teenagers look at their phone the first thing before they go to bed and then the first thing after they wake up. Also, a lot of adults do that, if we're being honest. Um, they have this Google culture of learning um, and their capacity for linear thinking has been replaced by a new mode of thinking involving taking in and dishing out information in a fast, disjointed, overlapping manner. Um, neurological implications for memory, problem solving, concentration, addiction, and risk-taking behaviors for both teens and adults because of smartphones. And they're so new and they came about so quickly that um, like they're just starting to understand kind of the ways that screen time, smartphones affects the human brain. Um, but one of the things they're suggesting for younger kids is that it really impacts memory and the ability to retain information, um, which, you know, logically speaking, if you don't have to know anything and you can just Google it, why would you ever remember anything? So that's kind of part of that one. Um, so here's this graph. This is screen time hours amongst Gen Z teenagers. So we see 6% is zero. 17% um, is two hours or less per day. 
20% is two to four hours per day, uh, 31% four to eight hours per day, 26% eight or more hours. So that's 50, 57%, that's four or more hours a day, um, which is a lot, you know. Um, I think I remember being a kid and like having like an hour that I was allowed to use the computer or something like that. Um, but with, with it being in their, in their hands, it becomes a little bit more easily accessible. So, Daniel, yeah, this is not just phone. This is also TV. Uh, yeah, this is just screen, screen media channel. of any, of any kind. So that includes like their, like video games, which I, I'm sure is video games is probably what makes up for a lot of the eight hours or more. Um, I don't know. Like that's they might be lying. Really it's possible. High. That's Alaska. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they live off the grid. Yeah. One. Well, I I do know some teenagers who I would say probably easily easily hit the two hours or less without trying, um, but not very many. So, in fact, I was just talking with some of them upstairs. Um, there's like a a screen time app on your phone. Um, and actually, they're doing better than I am. So, like, it tells you how many pickups you have per day. I have, like, 122 pickups per day. <laughs> a lot of them have, like, 30. Um, I'm going to blame it on the fact that I'm getting texts and emails every 20 minutes about camp. But, <laughs> um, yeah, so, so that's some of that stuff. Um, and I'm going to get them to keep track of it and, and send me screenshots so I can share sort of the teenage. So you guys can pay attention to that, too, on yours. And I think it's a... Not just a teenager thing to spend a lot of time on on the screen, but yeah. All right. So moving on. Next thing, there's uh, they're kind of defined by their need for affirmation from social media. Um, it's such a big thing, um, and and like for for any of us who have social media as well, like we understand to a certain degree, um, but it's a little bit different um, in teenagers. So so it's kind of the center of Gen Z's social life. Um, and some have suggested, some of the researchers have suggested that it's a result of more restrictive parenting, um, that because kids aren't allowed to do as many things as maybe previous generations were outside, that kind of stuff, they still look for ways to be together, sort of. Um, and so they, so they meet in social online spaces instead. Um, Studies have shown that we're living in a safer world than has ever existed, but um, extensive reporting and fear-inducing rhetoric um, have convinced us that we need to take more precautions. Um, how you interpret that's up to you. Um, but I think, and one of the points we'll get to later kind of hits on whether or not we're taking the right precautions um, in protecting our kids. So um, teenagers' reliance on social media for social interaction um, is at least in some part uh, related to the belief that it's too dangerous to go outside. Um, and that will, that's another factor that shapes Gen Z that we'll get to in a, a little bit. Um, research also shows that more time with screen activities is consistent, consistently linked to less happiness. Um, social media exacerbates loneliness and dislocation, and it appears to increase rates of de depression. And there's a study that came out a couple years ago um, that, that saw a correlation between um, smartphone ownership amongst teenagers and teenage depression. And it, it, it was pretty convincing. They can't really prove that it's connected, but um, you know, it, 
it seems that there's a connection between staring at your phone or interacting even, even positive interactions on a phone can't replace, you know, positive human interaction. Um, so just a couple quotes about the way Gen Z is shaped by social media. In order to keep up with their peers, members of Gen Z create a personal brand by manicuring their online presence, driven by the knowledge that they're constantly being watched, not only by their peers, but by future employers. This is an exhausting way to live, but they don't feel they can stop. Social media is where they feel the most seen, but the version of themselves that is being seen isn't authentic. This vicious dynamic is familiar to anyone who has ever been in high school. The pressure to act a certain way to fit in, but now there's no escaping it. Even alone in their bedroom at night, many can't stop scrolling through others' photos and videos. They feel pressured by the temptation to post something. There's no escape. So that kind of just hits on the difference. You know, like when, when most of us were growing up, you know, you might have felt some pressure at school, you know, or that anxiety about whether or not you fit in. And now it's just, it follows you home, um, which kind of brings us to our last point. The cyberbullying thing um, is a new phenomenon for Gen Z. Um, and it's different than like the typical bullies that most of us might have encountered in elementary and junior and high school um, because there's not the same, um, there's not the same repercussions in cyberbullying because you generally can make a comment to someone that's bullying and is totally anonymous. Um, and also you don't see the reaction. Um, and there's something about the way your brain processes somebody reacting to you doing something mean to them that sort of like makes you maybe not want to do it consistently. But if there's no, none of that feedback, you're just looking at a screen and you're saying something through a screen, um, not getting feedback, um, the consequences that it, like the bullying side might get are kind of removed. So yeah, Heather. So I just wanted to say this is so important because um, there was a report that was just released by the state that between 2014 and 2017, our teen suicide rate went from 12 every 100,000 to 21 mm -hmm. per 100,000. In Colorado specifically. In Colorado, yeah. Yep. Colorado has one of the fastest growing rates of teen We've suicide. Been high. Yeah. Going on the mountain states, they tend to be higher in the West. Yeah. But the fact that it more than um, almost doubled yeah. in just three years mm -hmm. is, is really serious. Yeah. And lots of factors in that, too, um, including probably cyberbullying, this, this link between depression and, and social mm -hmm. media. Um, and also Colorado has one of the highest rates of, like, teenage drug use mm -hmm. um, yep. and, and, like, vaping specifically. <laughs> We're double the national average on that kind of thing, which is really unhealthy if you want more information on it. Well, and another thing about that too is like what you were saying about the brain changes with memory and stuff like yeah. that. Um, some of the changes with the screens um, has to do with like the impulsiveness and mm -hmm. reward systems of the brain. Yeah. And so if there's thought that being more impulsive could lead to people making more lethal Definitely. decisions and a snap judgment. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and on the same subject, the cyberbullying thing has, has gotten kind of out of hand kind of out of hand because to a certain degree people don't realize that it's bullying like right. like they're just like well this is how people talk and it's like no that's not that's not how people talk like if there was an adult present and you said that how would you feel about yourself um or would you say it so so that's kind of the the screen we're 
definitely going to have to split this into two classes, but it's okay. Um, so the next point, um, there's a post, this generation is growing up with a post-Christian worldview, which is kind of a inflammatory title. Like, what do you mean post-Christian? You can't be post-Christian. It's not, it's not a thing that goes away. Um, but the way our culture thinks is not influenced by Christ anymore. Um, or is not influenced by Christian culture anymore, the way it used to be. Um, so a couple of the ways that Barna um, has identified that is they have a biblical worldview statement, which I'll read to you. And, you know, like, it's totally fine if you don't agree with some of it. Because I, I, I read through it and I was like, there's a chance that maybe I don't have a biblical worldview either, um, according to the their points and the way teenagers work. So, But I think the main idea is here's some traditional Christian values. Um, and there's some teenagers who maybe don't fit that. And, and the rate of it, the rate of people that do fit it is um, just pretty steadily declining. So here it is. Um, nine points, I think, or maybe eight. Um, has made a personal commitment to Jesus that is still important in their life today. Um, believes they will go to heaven when they die because they've confessed their sins and accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Uh, strongly agrees the Bible is totally accurate in all of its teachings. Strongly agrees they personally have a responsibility to tell other people about their religious beliefs. Uh, strongly disagrees that Jesus Christ committed sins when he lived on earth. Um, strongly disagrees that the devil or Satan is not a living being but a symbol of evil. Um, strongly disagrees that a person can earn a place in heaven if they're generally good or they do enough good things for others. Um, believes God is the all-powerful, all-knowing, perfect creator of the universe who rules the world today. Um, so, I mean, pretty, pretty standard points. Um, also, I think there's some of those that in Christianity might be worded differently today. So I think that could be part of the decline, but here's the generational breakdown of, of percentage of the population of Christians, I think, um, that qualify for the biblical worldview. Um, so baby boomers was 10%, Gen X seven, uh, millennials six and Gen Z four. Um, so one of the reasons for the decline is that um, people who are, ident are identifying as none of the above when it comes to religious belief is really increasing a lot, which we'll see in a minute. Um, so the next thing in Gen Z, there's a huge jump in the percentage of teenagers who are identifying as atheist, um, which I'll show you here. So um, you just take a minute to read that data and, and kind of understand it. But orange here is the atheist percentage. And we have, from elders, we have a pretty consistent line, six, five, six, seven, up to millennials. And then in Gen Z, it jumps to 13, um, which regardless of, of why that might be, is a huge shift in any, uh, any kind of data. So it, it means something. It says something about what's going on. Um, yeah, so the nun actually dropped a little bit in Gen Z, but um, yeah, another class later on, like maybe next week, I think is when we're going to hit on why teens are choosing atheism in, in such high rates. Um, so they, yeah, they have double the rate of all U.S. adults um, when it comes to atheism. So um, another thing that's interesting is the bridge between believing and unbelieving teens is fading, which goes back to the post-Christian worldview. Um, like there's not really so much of a cultural um, 
understanding of what Christianity is. Most, most people in our generation grew up with at least some amount of education on what the Christian faith is. Um, you know, might have learned some of the Bible stories. Um, that's not the case anymore. So there's not um, so much of a kid who grew up in church and, and kind of doesn't really want to be involved. And that's kind of the link. Um, nowadays, it's more like either you are a Christian or you are not at all, you know, and maybe have no idea what it's about. Um, so another just quote from the, from the research on this. Um, the rise of the religiously unaffiliated or nuns is symptomatic of a growing cultural apathy towards religion. Oh, I spelled that wrong. <laughs> Nominal Christians, those who identify culturally with the name, if not with a commitment, are no longer the center between the poles of, religious, of the religious and the atheist. The culture is secularizing, and those in the middle are shifting away from the religious pole. As the cultural cost of being a Christian increases, people who were once Christian only in name likely have started to identify as nuns, disintegrating the ideological bridge between unbelievers and believers. The bridge between believing and non-believing teens is nearly non-existent. Um, so that's like, I think we've all seen our culture kind of polarize in a lot of different ways. This is a similar thing. Um, teenagers today view um, religion as a you're either this or you're the opposite. And there's not any, there's not really room for um, crossover or discovery, I guess, um, which is, is going to come up in our next point as well, um, which is safe spaces. Um, safe spaces define Generation Z, which is weird. <laughs> um, like it's, it's, a, it's a good thing, but the way Generation Z does it, um, I think we'll see is maybe a little bit too intense and it and goes there's a lot of things that are, are kind of threads throughout all of it um, and just this idea of safety and security kind of runs throughout all of Gen Z um, and there's some reasons for that um, but main point Gen Z teens do not like to make people feel bad um, despite the cyberbullying thing <laughs> that's that disconnect I was talking about though it's different when you're face to face and you say something that makes someone uncomfortable the kids up in that classroom are not willing to say things that will make somebody uncomfortable in a group setting, which is really a difficult thing to navigate for me. Um, so, yeah, um, but it's a result of an inclusive culture that frowns on passing judgment that might provoke negative feelings in the judged. Um, teens often experience a form of culture shock when they are interacting with generations who are okay with differing ideas and who view conflict or negotiation as necessary um and it's really interesting to see they're like they just don't understand it's it's really is like they're coming from a totally different culture um so in what started out as a good societal practice among adults um, which was intended to increase our awareness of the next person of the person around us um, has sort of um, morphed into gen z's designated areas um, where they can avoid information um both that would induce or remind you of trauma, um, but also to opt out of discussions um, that may in any way upset or provoke an individual or where they might have to think about a different viewpoint. Um, that's what safe spaces means to Gen Z is like, you can't tell me your opinion because it offends me. It's really interesting, which is our culture too, right? Like the polarizing thing we've been, we've been seeing um, 
we see that opposing opinions are becoming taboo, um, even though academic, uh, and, and this is just a quote about um, the difference here. So even though academic debate takes place in a community, it's also combat and combat can hurt. It's literally offensive. Um, without offense, there is no antagonistic dialogue, no competitive marketplace, and no chance to change your mind, which we're seeing a lot of in Gen Z, is that whatever opinion you happen to have will be your opinion forever because you're not really willing to um, interact with people that, that have a different opinion. Yeah. So I'm going to be non-Gen Z and push back on that a little bit. Um. <laughs> well, I'm not, just for the clear, I'm not saying this is the right thing. And the next point is actually no, about how saying, it's not right. No, what I'm saying is that I think that that's not a trait specifically like isolated to Gen Z. Oh, yeah. That some of the research that I've been reading in my political science studies shows that we all do that. Yeah. Um, we have a psychological phenomenon called the backfire effect where somebody shares information contrary to your beliefs will make you believe your original opinion even harder than yeah. you before. Yeah. Um, so, so I don't know that it's necessarily just the, the Gen Z kids as much as it is becoming more a part of American culture. Right. So the, the one unique thing, though, is that when, we're, like, when you have a fully developed brain and are an adult, it won't impact the way, you know, like you, you have the ability to choose, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and Gen Z is sort of like this is how their brains are being formed. Form that right. we should avoid all conflict, you know, and we should not have any disagreement. And anybody who has an opposing opinion should not state it, you know. Mm -hmm. But you're right that it's it's kind of an everybody thing. Doesn't this tie back to your point one where they said they are nervous about social media and looking bad on social media because of potential future employers or yeah. things that come back around? Like, <coughs> it it's like kind of all like mishy mashy tied together. Yeah. This idea that they do something now, it's going to look back on them. They yeah. Which, by the way, is a lot of pressure to put on kids. So don't use your future employer might see that as a reason that they shouldn't have posted something on social media. You know, like you might be right, but that's a, like we just don't understand the amount of pressure that that puts on a kid. You know, I, I mean, I think we should take away all of their smartphones and destroy all social media for teenagers. But that's a little extreme. And so the in-between is kind of guiding them in, in the ways they use it. Um, yeah, so safe spaces and trigger warnings, we kind of covered that, um, but it's sort of everywhere. Um, like, and, and actually, teenagers use it kind of as slang and as, like, as a joke, but they always say, like, I'm triggered anytime something mildly frustrating happens. It's yeah. like joking, but not joking. It's like sort of joking, but yeah. sort of not joking. Yeah. Like, yeah. when I make terrible jokes, they're like, I'm triggered. I'm like, chill. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, all right. So, yeah, this is... A quote from Kinnaman and Lyons. This was actually a study on millennials. Um, but what they're finding is, like you said, like it's an all adults thing, but it's becoming more um, important to Gen Z. So <clears throat> protecting people from ideas they'd rather not hear is not only laughable, but is also ultimately harmful to society. Religious liberty and freedom of speech are rights that can only be put to the test at the distressing intersection of differing ideas. Mm -hmm. If we run away from that crossroads, these freedoms are simply hypothetical. Um, so another thing, teens don't like making definitive statements. Not too long ago, I asked in the teen class, like, what is, what is something that's true that you know for sure? And nobody would say anything. Um, and I, I even asked, like, what is an example of something that is inherently bad? And nobody would say anything. Like, they wouldn't say, like, 
beating up a random stranger is bad because they're not willing to say a definitive statement. And this kind of, this came out in the Barna study in some really interesting ways. Um, And also that this induces some anxiety um, and indecision when it's time to actually act on your beliefs or or give an answer to what your beliefs are. Um, But I don't know and I'm so confused were really common answers to seemingly basic questions like, who was Jesus? Specifically when asked to church teens. Um, And it's not because they don't know. It's because they're afraid that if they say who they believe Jesus is, it's going to offend somebody around them. So this is both a positive and a very negative thing. You know, we, it's, good, it's good that they're so aware of the way that their words and actions affect people around them. Um, but the indecision is pretty crazy. Yeah. Do you think that there's a correlation between them, like, having a, a, an idea and not being able to change their mind and making those statements? Is that in your experience? It seems, yes. Um, Sort of. I think they've seen a lot of adults who aren't willing to change their mind. And so they're concerned that if they say something, they have to stick with that for the rest of their life. You know, maybe they're 85% positive they know the answer. But, you know, okay. and some of it is also just that the, the way that they've been raised by, um, not by you guys as much as by the social, social media and the internet, is that, um, like, you just can't say something is wrong or right. Um, Get attacked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the one of the data points we'll look at in uh, next week's class, I think, is the percentage of teenagers who think that lying is morally wrong, um, and it's like thirty percent or something like that. And, and the reasoning, I think, you know, like gets into conversations that adults have probably had with them about um, Corey Tim Boehm hiding people in the Holocaust. You know, like they're like, well, that was lying. How's you know? I think it's partially because of education, but. I just have a thought of definitive statements. It seems like when people make definitive statements, other people are defining you. Mm -hmm. Like, if you make something, people are like, oh, well, you did this, and this, and this, and the other. And it's almost like this idea of not making a definitive statement is them retaining control of their identity. It's opinion. Yeah, you're right. A lot of Gen Z has to do with this need for control, which will come up even more in number four, um, which I think we're there. Yeah. Um, So it's, it's all about security. Um, real safety is a myth to Gen Z. That's not a thing that exists. Um, and they believe that true security is outside of their control or unattainable. And because of that, they try to control so much of their environment. Um, so, um, we'll sum it up. I'll give you like a really good example of how this works and how their thinking goes just based on, um, a comparison of millennial versus Gen Z fiction, um, that they grew up with. The security thing? Yeah. Yeah, that's, we'll get into that. that Yeah. So, first we have millennials growing up with Harry Potter. Harry Potter is a story in which a kid who is special defeats evil. (laughs) And evil is very specific. And then he goes on to live this magical, happy life. And he has a family um, and everything. Um, Gen Z, on the other hand, grew up with stories like The Hunger Games (laughs) and Divergent, where Katniss Everdeen might. Um, well, she first of all, she has to go to this games where there's teenagers killing each other to save her sister. And then eventually, spoiler alert, they do defeat evil, but she goes back home and the rest of her life, she's haunted by evil. And that's evil that's already been defeated. And that's Gen Z for you in a nutshell. It's like 
they don't really understand a world where there is safety and peace, um, which is really sad. Um, but it's partially because of this post 9-11 world. Um, Gen Z does not understand. They, they, they can't they have no concept of the fact I told a few of them recently. They used to be able to walk all the way up to the gate in an airport and there what there wasn't like a security as much um right yeah <laughs> i did that once um, just because we were running late and i was crying and my mom <laughs> was there so um yeah um so they don't they don't recall ever having lived in a country at peace which i think is something that we don't think about as adults but since these kids have been aware there has not been a time when our country has not been at war um, so between financial crisis, um, which is another thing that defines them, the 2008 um, Great Recession, um, financial crisis and perpetual war, um, they're really apt to be distrustful of the future. Um, a wary worldview is further shaped by Gen X parents, which some of you are, um, who came of age in the post-Watergate and Vietnam years um, amidst the time of economic and global uncertainty. So there's kind of some double stuff going on there. Um, yeah, so there's not not been a lot of certainty um, for Gen Z, and this goes beyond just the, the economic and the war stuff. Um, this also goes into um, specifically gender expression and sexual orientation, which is going to be part of next week's class as well. Um, there's um, there's no norm when it comes to gender identity and sexual expression for teenagers today. Um, so. Uh, and that's a distressing thing for a kid to, to face. If your own body cannot reliably represent you to the world, is anything trustworthy? Um, and that's a big thing uh, for Gen Z. So, well, I meant to build that one. All right, that's fine. Um, so Gen Z is really di diverse. That's the next point. Um, the most diverse um, generation to this date. Um, and there's some good things that come with that. There's a complete acceptance among Gen Z and even an elevation sometimes of those who are non-white and non-male. Um, so in that sense, it's good that we're like looking at human beings in Gen Z um, as kind of equal, you know, created in the image of God. Um, um, but it also is, is a result of radical changes in family. Um, there's a lot of multi-generational multi and multi-racial households now. Um, uh, different is ordinary for Gen Z. Um, kindergartners who started school in 2016 were the first American class in which minority ethnicities made up a majority of students and whites the minority. Um, so that's across all of America. Um, so diversity is, is a characterizing thing for Gen Z, um, which is good in a lot of ways. They don't look at the different um, in the same way that maybe two generations before look at different. Um, that's the same slide. Okay, number six. We are going to get through it, yes. Um, and this is the one that I said is maybe a little bit offensive. Um, so parents are double-minded, according to Barna. Um, simultaneously, simulta is that the way you say that? Simultaneously over and under protective. Um, there's definitely a preoccupation with safety. Um, we perceive that the world is more dangerous, but statistics show that the world is safer than it has ever been, um, which, which honestly I have trouble synthesizing that with the school shooting stuff. Um, but I don't really know what to do with that because they say it's safer. Um, anyways, number three, parents, afraid, parents are afraid of being called helicopter parents, and so that 
kind of pushes them in the opposite direction in some ways. Um, which another thing with that um, is this uh, term called snowplow parenting, um, which is kind of a Gen Z new thing, like parents who will snowplow any obstacles so that their kid doesn't have to face adversity. Um, it has really negative effects, so maybe consider whether or not you are a snowplow parent and stop doing that. Um, sometimes I'm the one who's being snowplowed. Just now you're um, yeah. So yeah, and then <laughs> yeah, it's like, wait, you got my kid in trouble? Like, yeah, they were doing something dumb. Um, so parents who would rather err on the side of being too loose than too strict. Um, so I have a couple quotes from both sides because basically the research is split on this, whether or not the parents of Gen Z are um, overprotective or underprotective. So Barna's saying it's maybe both. Um, so the result of overwrought parental supervision is a continuous and ultimately dramatic decline in children's opportunities to play and explore in their own chosen ways. As a result, children have become less emotionally expressive, less energetic, less talkative, um, and verbally expressive, less humorous, less imaginative, less unconventional, less lively and passionate, less perceptive, less apt to connect seemingly irrelevant things, um, less synthesizing, and less likely to see things from a different angle. A 2011 study found that students with hovering or helicopter parents, um, once they got to college, uh, were more likely to take medication for anxiety or depression or both, um, which I honestly, I have seen occasionally in, in teenagers and young people is that they're more anxious the more um, their parents are like kind of in on them about everything. Um, yeah. So a little experiment that I did with my lacrosse teams, I had a bunch of 10-year-olds and I had 15 kids on my team. So one week I was like, at the start of practice, we warmed up and stuff and I said, all right, you guys got 20 minutes to do whatever you want. You can play a game, you can set up, make your own game, you can do drills or whatever. And they just stared at me for a while, but then the next two practices they figured it yeah. out and they picked their teams mm -hmm. or whatever and they just, it was kind of like a free play, but the creativity, they didn't expect me to give them freedom to be creative and yeah. they weren't very creative actually. Yeah. It was like, oh, well, well and that's the thing <laughs> with kids, once you give them that freedom, freedom, they will eventually figure out how to not be bored. So, yeah. and it's a, it's a really good problem solving thing. So then on the other side, um, we have this underprotective, um, which is maybe overprotective in some ways and underprotective in other ways. Um, so the problem is that in an age of social media, ubiquitous porn, self-harm, cyberbullying, and sexting, children need greater protection than ever before, not less. Thanks to their parents, however, Gen Z is growing up too fast and childhood has slowly evaporated in, in the name of independence and freedom. Um, instead of being formed and disciplined by their parents, screensavers, no, screenagers, that's an autocorrect thing. Screenagers are increasingly shaped by the media. This is especially true of pornography, which is shaping sexual norms and expectations in radical ways. Um, if the teens in Barna's research are to be believed, many don't have much, if any, parental oversight of their Wi-Fi-enabled activities. Yes? So I was thinking that when you said that when you brought up the slide about the world not being safe, mm -hmm. I was thinking how much of that, yes, our country has been at war, mm -hmm. but how much of that affects our daily lives? How much does the financial crisis affect so all of our that. daily lives? I mean, like, it's, it's not personally impactful to me. We've never gone without a meal. We've never right. had to worry about 
but it is drafted. It is impactful to the majority of of teenagers. Like, there's a lot of teenagers. Is it only because they're reading news articles and stuff like that? I mean, Um, so when your country, like, all of us have experienced a time when we weren't at war. So for us, it's like, oh, that's just a temporary thing, right? Like, but teenagers, the war thing, that's just how life is. Like, there's always a place where our country is involved overseas and people are shooting each other. That's kind of that one. Um, And I don't think teenagers are especially well plugged into the news, except for maybe through school and their parents. Um, But then the the other one you said, um, the the demographic thing, um, that one has... significantly impacted them because they don't look at um, their future as like, oh, I'm going to go to college and graduate and get a job. They're like, I'm going to go to college maybe if I can afford it and then maybe I'll get a job at McDonald's, you know? Like, so so when we were growing up, like, it's like, yeah, you go to college and you get a job and then you, you know, like, you're fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not really a realistic expectation and that's not something that um, is a guarantee so much anymore. So even if a kid wasn't impacted so much by the recession, um, just the way that they view the future has right. been I mean, impacted yeah, by. Up in a shift. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Not, yeah, college is yeah. The... and there there aren't enough jobs to go around. Is what is what they see now. Right, yeah. So mm-hmm. even if even if a kid hasn't specifically experienced it, maybe they know a friend whose dad used to be a CEO and now is like a car salesman. You know, and so they've seen that kind of shift. You're not a salesman, Seth. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with being a car salesman. <laughs> it's just different. I'm feeling triggered. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. Um, yeah. So, so just that last point there. Um, Barn is suggesting that maybe parents are over-involved in the wrong ways and under-involved in the right ways. Um, and I think I would say, just as as a point from here. Um, the right ways to be overprotective for your kids involve their smartphone if they have one and involve not giving them a smartphone until they're a certain age and then having really specific limits. Like don't let them take it into their bedroom at night alone. You know, like you need to be able to see everything that happens on their smartphone um, because, man, that stuff is damaging and it, it can sneak in and you won't see it, you know, and six months later your kid will be depressed at 14 and you're not you're not going to know why um but that stuff is a big deal yeah i think we really learned that by yeah way. um i think we really talked pretty openly about that mistake we gave our oldest one too early and then they would take it away mm-hmm. and it was really for stupid reasons yeah like she would get on and watch scary videos and scare herself and yeah. not be able to go to sleep and like i said it wasn't like something that was um, particularly like harmful in the end, but it was harmful for the moment for her. Yeah. And it was, and then she would like do be really sneaky about how to get around. Yeah. She was really good at it, and so, and I, I mean, we've we've really, I, I would agree that that yeah. one has been hard. And, and social media, you're right, it can be so yeah. dangerous and so quickly. The dangerous thing, but also like it induces anxiety <laughs> in ways that it doesn't need to. Like teenagers today mostly use Snapchat. And a lot of them are super concerned with keeping their Snapchat streaks alive with all their friends to the point where they like, like basically have mild panic attacks if they're not doing it. <laughs> and so like I've had to like take their phone sometimes and be like, I'm going to hold on to this for a day while we're at this camp so that you could just let it die and get over it. 
Yeah. I'm so happy to see that some of you remember Streets history. I was like, yeah. Yeah, I convinced one other kid to do it too. But I just want to say, like, even if you take, I think the cyberbullying aside, like, if that didn't exist, and the and the opinions and and all of that stuff, and that didn't exist, just the social media, just itself, all of us know, as even adults on social media, that people do not post their struggles and what's going on. Yeah. It's a fake. Like, my marriage is so great when it's not. Yeah. And, you know, everything is, my life is hunky-dory and wonderful, and that's what they put out there. Yeah. And we have the life experience to know that that's not true. They don't. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's affecting them because they see, that, why is my life not great? Like, because her yeah. life is not great, but that's what she's putting out right. there. And so then that, I think that, that materializes into that depression and that spiral because they don't have the life experience to know that that's not really true. I'm not even sure if we have the life experience yeah. to know that, you know, but you're right. But, yeah. They are so much less prepared to handle that stuff. Yeah. Do you think as parents in our Gen Z millennial era that we don't have a comprehension of tangibles in the IT world, like in the cyber world, like in the 90s and 80s, that's kind of something that was like um, theoretical. Yeah. It was like, oh, one day this may help, you know, this is going to help things, but like, you know, do, is it hard? Because like, it sounds like we're so overly protective when it comes to our house, the street, don't go down to the park. That's tangible things that we can yeah. put our hands around. And cyber is not. It's not I, yeah. We have tangible I think a lot of it, go. I think a lot of it just is that parents are under-informed, mm -hmm. both on what teenagers are doing than social media, which I have a really great idea of because I spend <laughs> so much time with them. I know what's going on for the most part. Um, but I think parents are under under informed on what's going on and what's possible and what their kids are using. And then even if they are informed on that stuff, I think are under informed on how they can put parental controls on their kids, you know, and how they can control the, the stuff that's accessed, which will be one of the classes that we'll we'll do here. Um, which Steve, I need to talk with you about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's got a really good handle on it. Good, actually. Yeah, yeah, I thought so. Because, like they said, we learned the hard way. Yeah, yeah. So, so that'll be something we'll touch on, and I think, I think that's the main reason why. But that's that's the six factors that are shaping Gen Z, according to Barna. Um, next week, we'll jump into how they view themselves, um, and we'll keep going. And I'll print off all the notes from this for you guys if you want them. I just didn't want to print them before because I wasn't sure if we'd get through all of them, but. Um, that's it. We'll uh, finish up now. So thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks.